At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today, we're going to be continuing our discussion of what it means when we say that God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. We've been looking at this concept and how it's fulfilled in Christ throughout this Christmas season here at Wildwood. And today, we're going to continue that series as we're in part six, looking at a passage from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter nine, the first seven verses. But before we look at Isaiah 9, I I want you to do something for me. I want you to make a Christmas list. Can you do that? Now, some of you might want to take out and write it down, but you don't have to. You can just make it mentally. I want you to make a Christmas list. But on this Christmas list, I, I don't want you to write the things that you hope to receive. I want you instead to write a list or make a mental list of the things that you have done in the last 30 days to celebrate the Christmas season, whatever it might be. It might have been a holiday party at your office. It might have been gathering with family. It might have been hanging some lights on your house. It might have been the purchase and exchange of gifts with friends and loved ones. It might have been the sending or receiving of Christmas cards. I mean, the list could go on and on, right? It might have been your participation in the Mission Norman Christmas shop that Wildwood hosted this last month. I mean, there are a number of different expressions, a number of things that might be on that list. Um, I want you to make that list. And then I want you to just to pause for a moment and think, well, why did we do all of this? Why do we do this? And regardless of what your motivations may have been, I want to remind us of how we got here as a a church family, how we got here even as a a culture. We got here not because, not because we just wanted to celebrate a religion. And we got here not just because we wanted to celebrate a spirit of generosity or of kindness. And we got here not just because it's the end of the year and we had to do something. No, we got here, friends, because someone has done something remarkable. We are here today because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the reason for today. And so I I want us to, to just take a little bit of time this morning and I want us to remember what Jesus did, why it matters, and why it's so appropriate for us to respond in celebration. Now, we're going to do so by looking at a, a, an interesting passage. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9. I, I say it's interesting because why when we talk about the birth of Jesus, something that is recorded in our New Testament, why would we look at something that was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day? Well, I think when I read the passage, it'll become obvious why we're reading it together this morning. So if you've got a Bible, open to Isaiah chapter 9. I want to read these first seven verses for us. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, friends, this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to unpack these verses so that we remember the reason for our celebration. And so I want us to see that today. We're going to do so in two movements as we look at these verses. So, what are they? The first thing I want us to see is this. I want us to remember that we have gone from gloom to glory. Can you all say that with me? From gloom to glory. We have moved from gloom to glory. We, we see that in Isaiah chapter 9. Where do we see that in Isaiah 9? Well, we see it, first of all, in, in verse 1, where a, an environment is described. A condition, a situation that people are experiencing is described. It's described with words like gloom and anguish and contempt. Those don't sound like Christmas morning kind of words, do they? And yet, they describe so much of the world that we live in. Gloom, anguish, and contempt. Not only are they mentioned in chapter 9, verse 1, but actually when we look at the larger context, it is amplified even more by what we saw back in chapter 8, verse 22, when it says, "...and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness." A condition, an environment is described that is very, very unpleasant. Now, we might fill in with our imagination some of the things that might be happening because we are familiar enough with the difficulties of this life. But what specifically might they have been dealing with when Isaiah wrote this prophecy some 700 years before Christ was born? Well, we find out a clue in verse 1. It says that these things were happening in a a land defined as Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, what is the land of Zebulun and Naphtali? Those were tribes of Israel. And their land that they occupied inside of ancient Israel were, were these pieces of land up around the Sea of Galilee. We're familiar with this little lake right here. That's the Sea of Galilee. Zebulun and Naphtali were these areas. And it says that these areas of Zebulun and Naphtali, at the time that Isaiah writes his prophecy, are experiencing some difficult times. Well, what were they experiencing? Well, they were experiencing oppression. 
See, the kingdom of Israel had been split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel, because of their apostasy, had already begun to be disciplined by God through the nation of Assyria. And so they were experiencing rough times. By 732 B.C., Naphtali and Zebulun were already a part of kind of a a provincial condition with Assyria. They were already under the shadow of the Assyrians. And by 722 B.C., the entire northern kingdom would have fallen to the Assyrians, and that northern kingdom never would return. Because of that, when it talks about Zebulun and Naphtali, it says that they were a people who were walking in darkness. They were a people who were in deep darkness. You can imagine the Assyrian army like a a giant blocking out the sun so that the people in that northern region were living in its shadow. You know, even today, friends, I've had the privilege to go to Israel before and That Galilean region is one of the most exposed regions in all of Israel. When invading armies enter Israel, they almost always will come through that Galilean region. Even in the modern wars uh, of Israel, the people who live in those regions have had to deal with shellings and bombings and, and all kinds of distress and terror. The region of Zebulun and Naphtali at this time was living in the shadow of the Assyrian army. They were living in a condition, a situation of deep darkness. But here's what we need to see inside of this passage. I mean, it's Christmas. We can't just leave it in deep darkness. We can't just talk about gloom and anguish. We need to keep going. And the passage is full of evidence for us that it doesn't stay gloomy. It doesn't stay dark. As a matter of fact, when we look at this, the passage actually says there will be no gloom. It says that the anguish is going to be in the rearview mirror. It will be in the past tense. It says in in the latter time, there, there will come a time where this gloom will be turned to glory. It will be made glorious. What was the message for the people that came from God through the prophet Isaiah? The message was this, though right now you are living in gloom, though right now you are dealing with anguish, though right now you are experiencing contempt, it will not last. And there will come a time when all of it will be removed. So be of good cheer. Be encouraged. The gloom will turn to glory. And what's interesting is the way that it is delivered, the message is delivered, it is delivered in the past tense, even though it was describing a future event. That's a a way that biblical prophets would communicate to indicate just how certain something was. Even though it hadn't yet happened, they're going to talk about it in the past tense because it is absolutely positively going to happen. So, What is it that happens? What is it that turns this from from gloom to glory? And and, and how do they respond? Well, their response, it's interesting. It it says that they've they've gone from deep darkness to having the light shown. The bully, the shadow, the Assyrians will be removed and the light will shine again. 
And when that happens, the nation will begin to prosper again. It says that there, there will be a multiplication of the number of the nation. But not only that, there will be an increase in the joy of the nation. The gloom will be turned to glory and the people will be celebrating as a result. How much will they be celebrating? Well, look at how it describes it. It says that because this is going to happen, the people are going to rejoice as they do at the harvest. Now, what did people do at the harvest? Well, they rejoiced and celebrated. But why? Because it was payday, my friends. It was payday. When the harvest happened, they received the, the, the fruit of their work. And so they celebrated. And if it was a particular bumper crop, you can imagine them gathering and dancing and celebrating. I mean, what happens when someone has their name called and they run down to the front on the price is right and they, they guess the price exactly and they win the car? How do they respond? They jump up and down and they celebrate, right? Because they have received this amazing reward. That's the kind of picture that is described here. The people of God will celebrate knowing that their gloom is turned to glory. They will celebrate like someone who just won the lottery. They will celebrate like one who received the reward of the harvest. Not only that, but they'll celebrate like those who are glad when they divide the spoil. What's he talking about there? He's talking about when they win the battle. When they win the battle. Now, some in this room have, have fought in wars, but many of us have not. So I'm going to use an analogy that we might understand or relate to. Uh, something we saw just play out very recently in Argentina with the winning of the World Cup. When the, the nation of Argentina won the World Cup, people were pretty happy. How happy were they? Four and a half million people were roaming around the streets of Buenos Aires, celebrating for hours and for days. I was talking last night to Esteban Varela, who plays the, uh, uh, played, played the upright bass last night at our service, and he's from Argentina, so I got to share this moment with him, and he said, it was crazy, Pastor Mark. Not that he was there, but just knowing the city and knowing the celebration and knowing the situation. Why did that happen? Well, it's because their team won the World Cup. They celebrated what Isaiah is saying is there is a celebration, a World Cup winning style celebration that ought to well up in the hearts of God's people because our gloom is turned to glory. So friends, as we, as we gather here today and as we, we think about where we are as, as a people, you know, we may have brought into this room some reminders of our gloom. You know, there, there might be some, some difficulties recent deaths of family members. I know even our family, this last week I was at one funeral of a family member headed to a different one the middle of this coming week. Maybe that's been your experience this holiday season as well. Maybe it's been the, the difficulty of illness as difficult diagnosis have gone on or the effects of Alzheimer's are continually something that you're, you, your family member are dealing with. Or maybe it's economic this time of, of season where it seems like money is flowing in, in and through many other families. It's especially tight for you today. Or you're in the throes of addiction and you can't seem to break the cycle. 
Whatever it might be, there are a variety of reasons that might have come with you this morning that might have caused you to think that you are dealing with some gloom. But let me ask you, what would be your heart-level reaction if I told you that your gloom could be replaced with glory? My friends, I I think we would respond like the nation of Argentina when they won the World Cup. And I think that all of the things that we are celebrating at Christmas time would not even be a drop in the bucket of what we would want to do in celebration if our gloom was really replaced by glory. But is that really something that we can look forward to? Can we really look forward to our gloom being replaced with glory, or is that just something to put on a Christmas card? Well, friends, it's something that is real, and it's a hope that we can hang on to. And I believe we see that by continuing our study to look at where this hope is anchored, and we see it in the rest of the passage. Because in Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, even though it was written 700 plus years before Jesus was born, we see the reason for the celebration of the season of Christmas. So let's take a look at it a little more in depth. It's interesting that this entire section talks about an assurance of our gloom being turned to glory, not because of something we do, but because of something God will do. Because of something God will do. It's not a matter of what we earn that God has to give us reluctantly. It's about what our gracious God does on our behalf. The end of these verses, at the end of verse 7, it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God in his enthusiasm, God in his power, God in his wisdom, God in his grace will turn our gloom to glory. That's what it says. And this is something that is further mentioned at the beginning when we see that it is he who has made glorious the way of the sea. It is God who is the one who is going to do this work. So what is it that God in his grace has done? Well, Isaiah in chapter 9 gives us three different indications of what God has done for us to turn our gloom to glory. And it's designated grammatically in these verses with the word for. Three different times in these verses that I, that I just read for us, the word for is used. So it introduces another reason why our gloom is turned to glory. So what are those three fours that are mentioned? Well, the first one is because of the deliverance that he has done. Verse 4 says it for us this way. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What is he talking about on the day of Midian? He's pulling a reference from Israel's history. Remember back in the name of Gideon? It was the Midianites who were oppressing them. It's kind of cool that it worked out that way. They rhyme Gideon, Midian. You know, nice. Anyway, just making sure. Thanks, Muriel. You're, you're still with me. So, um, but it was in that day when the Midianites were oppressing the nation of Israel, and God raised up a very small army that won a victory for them, that removed the oppression of the Midianites. And what Isaiah is saying is, just as God did that with a small army in the past, 
So God will raise up a means of deliverance from the oppression of the Assyrians in your present. That is a reason for your celebration. And in the same way, friends, we might think of this for us. What are the things that we are under the oppression of? The presence of sin, the consequence of our sin, the guilt and the the punishment that our sin deserves, the bondage of addiction, the feelings of hopelessness and depression, the things that want to enslave us today. We see here in these verses that God is saying there is a way for that oppression to be broken. And when God breaks it, our gloom is replaced with glory. We'll talk about how he does that in a moment, but that's why there is such a celebration. The first four is for deliverance. The second four, though, is celebrating for the end of war. Celebrating for the end of war. This is not just the elimination of the Assyrian influence on the nation, but it's actually a reminder that there will come a day when wars will stop. Where do we see that? Verse 5, he says, For for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There will come a time when military equipment And soldiers' uniforms will not be necessary because there will be no conflict upon the earth. What will we do with all the stuff then? I know some of you are thinking, well, it will end up at the army surplus store. That's where it will all go. No, it's saying here that there will come a time where those things will be so unnecessary that there will be a giant bonfire of God's grace where the instruments of war will be burned in front of us a reminder that they are no longer needed. Friends, part of the anguish, part of the gloom that you might be experiencing is just the pain of conflict and tension and all of those things, whether it's between nation and nation or between person and person or what you feel between you and God. It is possible for those things to be done away with and in a massive bonfire of God's grace. The instruments of war, the symbols of separation will be consumed and done away with. That is a reason for us to move from gloom to glory. That's a reason for us to celebrate. But there's a a, a third thing that that is mentioned here, a third four. And it's a four that, that centers around the one who will come, who will make all of these things possible. That's right, it's, it's the coming of the Savior, the coming of the Savior. And we see this in verse 6. You might not have been aware of any of the other verses in Isaiah 9, but you're probably aware of Isaiah 9, verse 6. This amazing verse, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when, when you see that verse... We often appropriately attribute that to Jesus. But let me ask you, why? Why do we attribute that to Jesus? And and you might think, well, because it says a child is born, a a son is given. Well, yeah, I I get that. And I I do think that's strong evidence. But there's even stronger evidence that this is referring to Jesus Christ. Where do we find that? Well, let's look 
back at the beginning in verses 1 and 2. It says, In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Now, friends, if there is a second verse from Isaiah 9 that you know, my guess is it's this one, isn't it? Now, why do you know that? You know that probably not from Isaiah 9. You know that probably from Matthew chapter 4. Because in Matthew's gospel, these very words are quoted in a clear identification, saying that when Jesus began his public ministry... This was fulfilled, pointing and connecting those dots that the child to be born, the son to be given, mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, is in fact referring to Jesus Christ. Now, I think this is fascinating because when we look at this region, this is the map we saw earlier. Remember, where are Zebulun and Naphtali? In the southern part? No, no, it's, it's in the northern, right? Again, just making sure you all are with me. It's been a long night. Let's, let's make sure we're, we're together. Zebulun and Naphtali in the north, those areas surrounding what body of water, what lake did we talk about? Sea of Galilee. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali are the place where the light has shone. Let me give you a map in Jesus' day of that area. Right here, Zebulun and Naphtali. On them a light has shone. Let me ask you, what percent of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, do you think took place in this region right here? What percent? It, 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 seriously, what, what would you guess? What's that? 90. Okay, that's, that's high. 80. At least 70%. And depending on, on how you quantify it, I've seen the number as high as 95, depending on how you count it, 95%. Somewhere between 70 and 95% of Jesus' earthly ministry took place in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. On them, friends, a light has shone. These are not wasted words. They are clear prophecies Reminding us again that the child that will come to turn our gloom to glory is none other than Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, what do we learn about Jesus from these verses? What do we learn about the Savior as we celebrate him? Well, a number of things are mentioned in that glorious verse 6. First thing, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Many commentators, appropriately, I believe, connect that to both man and God coming together. God incarnate in one body. A child is born human. A son is given divine. Uniting together. Reminding us that Jesus is, in fact, God with us. Not only that, but the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is really a, a picture of the royal garments that would be placed upon a king. The king wears his royal robe as a reminder of the responsibility that he carries. He says that this one who has the zeal, the one who will do this, the one who will bring all this to pass is the one who has the authority to do it. Jesus wearing his royal robe and garment takes his rightful place as the king of kings and the lord of lords. Not only that, 
But it says that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. This speaks of his wisdom. He knows what to do. Now, earlier this year at Wildwood, we looked at the book of Revelation and we saw that there will come a time when Christ's kingdom will be established upon this earth and Jesus will be reigning from the earth and over the earth. And when he does that, his wisdom as a wonderful counselor will be on full display. It will be wonderful to live with him reigning upon the throne in Jerusalem over all the earth. But friends, even when Jesus came to this earth, He revealed to us that he is a wonderful counselor. When he spoke, he spoke truth. When he lived, he modeled what it looked like to live that truth out. When we look to Jesus, we find the wisdom of God. He is a wonderful counselor. If you wonder what to do with your life, if you wonder what things you should avoid, what you should invest in, what was I created for, what is my purpose, friends, there is no better counselor than Jesus Christ. He is a wonderful counselor. We come to him for our direction and for our life. But not only does he have wisdom, but we're reminded that he's also mighty God. He doesn't just know things, but is weak. He knows things and he's all powerful. He's omnipotent, not just omniscient. He has the power to do whatever needs to be done. He is able to turn our gloom to glory because there is nothing that he can't do. There's nothing that he can't do. We see that here. He's our mighty God. Not only that, but he's our everlasting father. Now, this is a little confusing, isn't it? Jesus is God the Son, and yet here it says that he is Father. So what is going on with this reference? Well, I think that when we look at this, we need to understand a kind of Hebrew idiom that would help us understand that father here means originator, originator, the one that, 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 that authors, that, that brought into being. Jesus is the one who is the author, the one in, who is sovereign over eternity, over things everlasting. The picture and the reminder is this. If you want something eternal, there is one you need to come to. If you want everlasting life, if you want everlasting peace, you need to go to the Father of eternity who is able to deliver you and give to you everlasting gifts. That's what we see here with this declaration that he is the everlasting Father. So many things fade, you know, like a Christmas tree that loses its needles. That's a picture of so many things in our lives, isn't it? It drops a few needles at a time. Most gifts dry up eventually. Don't we want something that is everlasting? Don't we want something that is eternal? Something that will go on and on and on? Go to the everlasting Father. He's the one who is able. Go to Jesus Christ. Not only that, but he is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. The one who sits sovereign. The one who makes possible peace between people and people and between people and God. Even between nature and those who live inside of nature. Jesus is able to do these very things. Now, I want to make a a statement about this. Um, You might be thinking, okay, if this is who he is and this is what he can do, why is it? that we are not experiencing the full effect of all of these things right now. And again, we've talked about this all year as a church family. 
It's because in the providence of God, in the unfolding of his plan and his will, some of these things just haven't happened yet, but they will. The Bible talks about them in the past tense because it is that certain. And so we experience now the first fruits of the blessings of being connected to the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But there will come a day when those will not just be be first fruits, but those will be a full feast that we will share with him. And passages like this are encouraged to remind us that right now while we wait, even though we live in a gloomy world, May we remember and be focused on the glory that is to come, connected to the one who is able to deliver it for us. Verse 7 reminds us of this very thing. When it, when it says that these things will happen as he assumes the throne of David and reigns over his kingdom. I think that's, that's fascinating. Uh, Bruce reminded us last night as he read Luke chapter 1 for us that there is a, a future time when, when Jesus will take a throne that had sat empty for, at that time, hundreds of years. And now it has sat empty for thousands of years. But one day Jesus will come and sit upon the throne of David and reign upon this earth. And when he does so, when he does so, the full effects of his glory will be felt by us in that kingdom. And it says, I love this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Think about that. Of the increase, there will be no end. Of the increase of these things, there will be no end. In other words, every day in eternity is better than the one before. Amen? Every day in eternity is better than the one before. Why is it? that we could go from gloom to glory, that that we who live in a world that is full of so much pain could legitimately gather and with full heart celebrate at Christmas time. We do so, friends, because we are remembering the one who is able to completely change the situation, to completely change it. Friends, we need to remember the reason for the season. And when we do, joy is our response. Celebration is appropriate. Now, friends, when I say all of this, I want you now to to think about another list. You know, I began, I said, I want you to think of a Christmas list of everything you've done to celebrate. Now I want you to make another list, another Christmas list. And this Christmas list, again, is not asking for what you want. I want you to take an inventory of what you have. What is it that God has given to you in Christ? Whether they are things that you are currently enjoying, things like forgiveness of sins, fellowship with him, or whether they are things that look forward to the future, things like eternity in his presence, every day being better than the one before, those kinds of things. Make a second Christmas list. And as you look over that second list, It will remind you again the reason for the season. And I might encourage you, this is something you can do every Christmas. Every Christmas. Pause and make a list, not just of what you want, but of what you've been given by Christ. And let that be the inspiration 
for you to remember how great he is, that you might sing his praise and glory all the year long. Now, this morning as we gather, I know that for some of you, this is a reminder of a blessing that you are aware of and that you are treasuring and that you are celebrating. But there are probably others of you here today that are still investigating the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus is not just another man. Jesus is God himself who came to this earth to rescue you from your sin and the judgment that that sin deserves. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay it. And by placing our faith and trust in him, we might be forgiven of sin, might be assured of eternity, and might be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the life that he has called us to live. Friends, you do not need to walk through this Christmas season without any gifts. I don't have any presence on the stage, but thankfully there is a God who can fill your heart with more than just stuff. He can fill it with his spirit. He can fill it with hope. He can fill it with forgiveness. And it happens when we just trust in him. Would you place your faith and trust in Christ today? I want to close with a quote that will help us kind of process all of this, and then we'll pray and then have a a song. The quote's from Ray Ortland. He says this. He says, look at Jesus. As the wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this great, great passage that reminds us of why we have so much to celebrate. Lord, thank you that you have shared this information with us, not keeping it some mystery or surprise for eternity, but you told us now so that while we live in a land of gloom, anguish, and contempt, we might fix our eyes on you. Remember the deliverance that is to come and celebrate what you are certain to do. Thank you for what you have done in Christ and thank you for the encouragement we have from your word today. 